Once upon a time. Don't you love those four little words? When you hear those words, you know that you're really in for a treat. It's going to be something fantastical and magical and just something that kind of takes you out of the everyday into another world. And, and when you're in that world, you, you know it's going to be good because usually a once upon a time story ends with a happily ever after. And so that good story is kind of like a, a fuzzy blanket and a, and a roaring fire and a hot cup of cocoa on a cold winter's night. It is just comforting. Now, some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy because you don't know what this cold winter's night thing that we've, you've heard of it. But uh, these are the stories that they warm us and they comfort us and they set our minds at ease. And that's why these stories are so prevalent in the midst of our own more complicated stories, they warm us up to the possibility that maybe in our life everything will end up okay. Maybe we too can set up our, our life and, and job and family in a way that we also get that hep, happily ever after. The problem is Jesus, who was a great storyteller, never started his stories with once upon a time. And he didn't really seem too concerned with the listener's comfort. Instead, he, he's kind of like uh, that family member who always brings up politics at Thanksgiving. It's like he's intentionally trying to make us uncomfortable. His stories invite us to do an examination, to reexamine the way we think about life and, and God and the, the convictions that we've built up into systems in our lives. As one scholar wrote, Jesus' parables often unsettle rather than reassure. And so what we have this morning is two stories, two parables that Jesus tells not only to make his audience reevaluate their choices, but also for you and me to do the same. Jesus intends to take some rocks and sneak them into your shoes so that as you're walking, maybe, just maybe, you will stop. And in the time it takes you to bend down and, and pull them out, you'll realize that you had been heading the wrong way that whole time. So I'm going to read both of these stories. One's about a te some tenants working a vineyard, another's about a wedding feast for a king's son. And what I'd like you to do is this. You'll notice at the top of your notes it says, uh, what, bothers, what bothered me in this parable was. I want you to pay attention to what bothers you, and I want you to write it down, because maybe, just maybe, the very thing that kind of gets under your skin or makes your hair stand on edge is the very thing that God has something He wants to say to you about your life this morning. So join me, hopefully you're already there, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Continuing in chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their crops, their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." Did you find one, at least one uncomfortable thing in those parables? Okay, good. Well, I found at least four that I want us to focus on, four things that make us uncomfortable, four uncomfortable truths. The first one is that in each story, it starts with an authority and that it's not us. The first story starts with a master of a house, and the second story begins with a king. And if you remember from last week, it was the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leadership of Israel that came to Jesus questioning his authority. But I think the underlying message is, hey, we're the authority. Where do you think you got yours? If you have a problem with the temple, you should have come to the chief priests. If you got an interesting uh, interpretation of the scriptures, you should have gone and seen the Pharisees to see if it was right. And yeah, right from the beginning in each story, Jesus reminds them there is a master and there is a king and they are not him. And neither are we. That's shocking in our society today because personal autonomy is this new untouchable rule. We get to decide what we want for ourselves in every area of life. And we know that for our autonomy to increase, God's authority has to decrease. But the fundamental and recurring truth of the scriptures is that there is a God, this God created everything, and he has the right to rule, which means we have to come to terms with his terms. There exists an authority we cannot ignore. Once you think about it, that might make you a little uncomfortable. 
The second uncomfortable truth is that each story challenges our systems of self-interest. In the first story, a brand new vineyard is ready for work. It's got the fence, the, the watchtower, even the wine press. But most importantly and interesting to the tenants, the owner leaves and goes to another country, which gives them an idea. This vineyard could be ours. You see, in that time, if you worked a land for three years without the owner taking any interest, uh, collecting any rent, there's sort of a squatter's rights. You could claim that land as your own. So they come up with a plan. We work the land. Whenever he sends someone to collect payment, we'll scare him off by whatever means necessary until he gets the message and we get the land. And this really lines up with the history of Israel and its kings and religious leaders. They rebuff and abuse and even killed God's prophets. Well, in Jesus' mind, these leaders are complicit in the deaths of God's servants because they continued to resist God's leading, a rejection of God that would result in the killing of his son. And that's exactly what happens in our story. But the key is the intent. Look at verse 38. It says, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. A series of books and movies I enjoy is the Lord of the Rings. And in the Lord of the Rings, there's the kingdom of Gondor. Now, this kingdom has been without a king for a thousand years by the time that that story unfolds. Instead, they've been served by a series of stewards who uh, sit on a little chair next to the throne and rule in the place of the king until the rightful king returns. Well, they've been doing this for 25 successive generations and have gotten pretty comfortable that no king is coming and they don't want anything to change. So when the current steward's son, his name's Boromir, discovers that there is an heir and he might be returning, he does not respond with joy because that actually would be the best for the kingdom. Instead, he says, Gondor has no king and Gondor needs no king, which really highlights the theme of the books, that once you have power, it's nearly impossible to let it go. I think you can think of the religious leaders in the same way. Until John the Baptist, Israel had been through 400 years of God being silent. It probably felt like the master had gone to another country and didn't care anymore. So the priests started developing power of their own, political and religious power with a state-financed new temple and a very much more comfortable way of life. Pharisees had also set up their own systems of self-interest. Because with no prophets around, they then took on that role of the arbiter of God's truth. They were the keepers and the interpreters of the law, free to add to it, potentially, where they saw fit, free to take away from it, possibly in their own lives, and yet always having this image before everyone else that they were the most righteous people of God. It had taken a while, probably, for these systems really to get going, but life was going pretty good for these groups. And what we find is they weren't interested in anyone coming in and messing them up, not even God. And that's why it makes us uncomfortable. I think it gets in a little too close to our hearts. We've, we've worked so hard to set up our own systems of self-interest. Maybe it's a certain kind of family you're hoping that your family could, could look like, then that would be it, or a, a path you've been taking for career success, or a certain kind of reputation you'd like to have among your peers. Even philanthropy or religious participation, those two can be systems of self-interest. And, and what I mean by that phrase is just simply things that help us to get what we want. 
And then we just need God to stay out of the way. And we see this confirmed in the second story as well, if not in a more personal way, because the king's not interested in collecting rent from his subjects. He's actually interested in their presence, their being with him. He's invited them to be a guest to the wedding feast of his son. This is the shindig of the century. Everyone got the Evite months ahead. They know it's coming. They've all marked yes. And now it's just for that second invitation, the servants to come and say, come on, it's ready. You've got to be there. But they will not come. So he sends more servants to tell them just how incredible the food is and how bursting at the seams ready it is, but they pay no attention. It says they pay no mind. It's not what they wanted anymore. Instead, they wanted to be at their own farm or they wanted to go do their own business or even to show the king how much they hated him by beating and killing his servants. They wanted their own way of living so much that they brutally reject his generous invitation. The chief priests and Pharisees were willing to do what they needed to keep God out of the vineyard, to keep him out of Israel and out of their systems of self-interest. But before we just kind of lay into them in condemnation, can we really say that we're okay with God interfering with what we've worked so hard to establish? In another novel, one without wizards or elves, uh, called The Brothers Karamazov, the author, Dostoevsky, he lays out a, a similar scenario in his own sort of parable, a story within the story called The Grand Inquisitor. And in it, he asks us to imagine that Jesus does return, and he shows up in the streets of Seville, Spain, during the time of the Spanish Inquisition. And Jesus is doing miracles, and he's immediately adored and received by the people, and you would think that the church would be ecstatic that he's there. But instead, the church has him arrested and thrown in jail, and he's to be executed the next day. And so the Grand Inquisitor comes to visit Jesus in his cell because he thinks he at least should know why he's been arrested and why he must die. And essentially, the Inquisitor says, you failed us when you came the first time, and we do not need you anymore. And if you were to be here, you'll actually get in the way of the mission we want to carry out. It's a brutal story. And it sounds ghastly, but as a church leader, I have to say it's very convicting because I have to wonder, if Jesus really showed up, showed up would I, would, would we view him as a blessing or as a disruption? And the challenging question of our stories that Jesus tells becomes, am I willing to respond to the claim that God has on my life or will I reject God's message in favor of what I want to do? And that is an uncomfortable question. The third uncomfortable truth is that each story, it, it features real consequences for rejecting Jesus. Each story features real consequences for rejecting Jesus. Now, just the word consequences probably gave some of you just shivers. I'm, I feel overtired uh, about having to deal with consequences because with four little kids, it's just, it's consequences all the time. There's the real natural ones, and then there's the artificial ones. Like, okay, you did this thing that I asked you not to do, so now go stick your hands on the wall and count to 10. You know, when you're dealing with a three-year-old, those are some of the attitude-shifting sort of consequences you have to give. 
Now, the goal is then that we can help them avoid some of the natural ones, like not listening and then running out into traffic, which has consequences we don't want them to have to uh, go through. Well, both of these stories are filled with consequences of an uncomfortable level. In the second story, the king responds, he's angry with, and he responds to troops to destroy the murderers. And in the first, uh, what the master's response should be is so obvious to Jesus' audience that he actually lets them fill in the blank. And they say this, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. But what was clear to his audience is unsettling to us. We'd love to get out the eraser and write out a, uh, erase that and pen a, pen a new ending. The story we'd like to hear is this one. The, maybe the master, upon realizing that the tenants needed extra food to support their family and were actually doing a really good job with the crops and made the vineyard look really nice, like they were putting in a bed and breakfast kind of thing there. And he decided, you know what? I don't need to interfere anymore. I'll just go and build another vineyard. I mean, wouldn't that be, that's like a happily ever after sort of ending. Or maybe with the parable of the wedding feast, the ending could be this, that the king decided to overlook the death and the murder and the total rebellion of his subjects and said, it's chill, man. I don't, I don't want to impose, you know, I'll let you know when the anniversary party is. That's not how they end. And Jesus' explanation is clear as to why. Just as the tenants rejected the son, Jesus says, you have rejected me, and that's going to have consequences. And so he quotes Psalm 118, stating, he's the stone that the builders rejected, and he will be the cornerstone. He'll be the key piece to the kingdom that will never fail. But as for you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The stone you rejected will be your breaking, and that which could have brought you life, it'll crush you. Jesus is warning them about the trajectory of their choices because there are real eternal consequences for rejecting Jesus, and that makes us uncomfortable because we love the idea of God so loved the world of John 3.16, and we love John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we stop reading, and we forget about verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And the next verse says, why? Well, because they love the darkness. And the religious leaders, they stand condemned. And we do too if we also reject Jesus. For death, yes, but more than that. Because when he talks about exclusion from the kingdom of God, he's talking about something worse than death. I know, I know we don't like to talk about hell. It, it embarrasses us. It, it feels like an old idea. And sometimes we just have a hard time in our own mind trying to reconcile God's love with this idea of punishment. But there lies the problem. If we don't have a good enough sense of the honor and grandeur and holiness of God, then things like rejecting his son will seem small rather than the wretched and wicked rebellion it is. But you see, the concept of divine judgment doesn't have to take away from the loving message of salvation. It's really just the opposite. If we remove judgment, then our God is no longer just, and He is no longer holy. And salvation, it, it's not even needed anymore. 
Or as one author wrote, grace is only grace if the outcome could have been otherwise. So though it may seem contrary to our often two-dimensional view of God, it is the full picture of a master, of a, of a king who will see justice delivered even at the same time that he is offering grace. The fourth uncomfortable truth is that each story expects a faith with results. It expects a faith with results. After the king responds in anger and judgment on those whose systems of self-interest take precedence over their love for him and his son, he does something pretty spectacular, and he decides to invite others. He sends the servants out to the main roads to bring in as many as they can find, and they do it, and they, they fill the whole uh, wedding hall. And this would have been all sorts of types of people, people that would have never expected themselves to end up as guests at a royal banquet. It's this beautiful and unexpected scene, but then it gets uncomfortable, and this happens, starting in verse 11, chapter 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus adds this, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if I just had to take a wild guess, if you were able to listen through both of those parables in entirety and then pick one thing that seemed most grating to you, most uncomfortable, it was probably this episode. Because we wonder, is it really fair that this guy got such a raw deal for just wearing the wrong clothes? And I don't know, to add insult to injury, uh, Pastor Mike had commented this week, you know that this guy's wife probably told him what he should have worn, and he just didn't listen. <laughs> but even today, we recognize there is such a thing as appropriate attire to something like a wedding, even if that definition has changed in the last 50 years. But we all still wonder, is, is it fair to expect someone who just got invited from the roadside to have something that's royal wedding appropriate? And apparently it is, but maybe not for the reason that you've heard. Since about the time of Augustine, an idea has been floating around to help make this parable seem more reasonable. And the idea was this, that the king would have been expected to provide the clothing for his guests. And so what we have here is that the guest has refused what was freely offered. Now, it's good theology, but there, there's really no convincing evidence that this was actually a practice in that time for Jesus to draw from. Now, the best answer is really that this was not a specific garment like a tuxedo or something of that sort, but rather it's clean clothes, as anyone would have had available. To come in your dirty clothes would have shown contempt for the king and his banquet. The guests merely needed to run home and change on the way. So, where the tenants and the first invited in those two parables represent this overt rejection of God for their own systems of self-interest, this man's grubby clothes reflect that he didn't really want to be there, even though he came. His heart wasn't in it. He's willing to take the benefits of the feast, but he didn't care to celebrate the son. He wanted the wedding cake, he just didn't want the wedding king. In the first story, Jesus states this in verse 43, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
Well, this part of the second story really shows what happens when someone responds but doesn't produce any fruit. A person whose life proves their profession of faith to be false. And so he's cast out. But that part of the story is really weird too because all of a sudden it's outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and it doesn't fit the imagery of the parable. You see, instead, Jesus is using the language very specific to final judgment in order to show that this is another way of rejecting Jesus, and it has consequences. They might look the part, they may have said a prayer or been part of a Bible study or tried to come as often as they could to church, but at some point, they decided inwardly that it was always going to be an outward label. I was invited I was saved. I'm a Christian. And it was, they were never going to allow the kingdom of God, Jesus' own spirit and his desires to shape their identity into something new. We cannot have the kingdom on our own terms. And that's where the discomfort comes. We hear of free grace, but we miss out on the fact that it brings with it its demands. Jesus himself said, count the cost. That's not about works to earn salvation, but it is a new work that is done in us to produce something beautiful. It is rescue and righteousness because a true faith, a saving faith, is a faith that produces fruit. And that fruit Jesus defines as obedience to his commands. Not personal experience, not how it makes you feel, but a life that begins to line up with the values and expectations of Jesus' new kingdom. Many are called, but few are chosen is a warning that we should not take our invitation or place in the kingdom of God for granted, but rather we should continue to pursue it, for the faith that is true will endure to the end. All right. Enough putting rocks in your shoes. Enough with the uncomfortable. I'm sure I've given you more than you were hoping for for discomfort this morning at church. So even as those pebbles wriggle around in your shoe, this is the moment where I want us to see as we bend down to take them out what they're supposed to point us toward. What is it from these passages that should make us marvel? And the first marvelous truth is this. It all hinges on Jesus. It all hinges on Jesus. In the second story, it's the son's wedding that prompts the occasion for invitation. In the first story, it's the son's arrival and his death, which secures for us this most important truth, that the killing of Jesus is not the undoing of God's plan, but rather the fulfillment that makes salvation possible. The apostle Peter teaches on this to the very same group of religious leaders in Acts chapter 4. He says this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't that amazing? It's the, it's the most terrible, the most wretched act of rebellion against God in history, and it does not stand in his way, but rather it carries out his intention by which we can be saved. And Jesus tells us this is the plan all along. Verse 42 of Matthew 21, he says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Is it? Is it marvelous? Has God opened your eyes to behold the beauty of all that he has accomplished? 
Are you captivated by the salvation that he's brought about? And if not, will you please go to God and ask him to remove anything that might be blocking your sight, anything that will lead you, that would prevent you from being led into the truth and beauty of Jesus? Because the next marvelous truth is this, that that salvation, it is open to all through true faith. See, the second story reveals to us that God's invitation is indiscriminate. It is open to all. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. In fact, it is specifically sent to the undeserving. And the only requirement, as we saw from the garments, is that your response be real, that it would be received with true faith. Pastor Tim Keller has this to say about true, or what he calls saving faith. He says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the direction of your faith. It's not the perfection of your faith, but the object of your faith. But saving faith does not simply mean believing in Jesus in general. It is transferring your basic, fundamental life trust from where it is to Jesus. It's like the free climber who recognizes his hold is crumbling and must plant himself onto a a new hold. He's saved not by how much he thinks it will hold him, but he is saved by two things. One, if that hold is secure and good, and two, if he actually moves to it. Friends, Jesus is the rock who is secure. Are you willing to move your life onto his foundation? Because the systems we create, as good as they seem, they're not enough. My family, as wonderful as they are, as cute as my kids are, it can never be the thing that'll be good enough for my life to be held on to. My success as a pastor and even what you might think about me, while incredibly tempting to try and build my own security and identity around it, it is a crumbling rock that will fail. And whatever you've built to get what you want out of life, friends, it will fail you too. So who or what is your faith truly in? Is it in a system of your own making? Is it in doing what you want while just kind of hiding under the name and license of Christian? Or is it truly in Jesus and his promises? Now some of you, I hope, are are, are thinking right now, wow, I, I realize that it has been my success or it's, or it's been my education, or maybe it's a relationship that right now you're wrapped up in, or an image of yourself that you've kind of been putting out there and working to cultivate, or a feeling of bitterness from a hurt that you're unwilling to let go, and it actually gives you the control that you feel you need to have meaning and purpose in your life. And you've been chasing them so long, or been setting up these systems for so long, you didn't even realize that you were no longer holding on to Jesus, but something else. And here's the beauty of Jesus' teaching. For to those who think that they have had their act together, who have their systems in place and their illusions of control, Jesus is willing to break through and freely extend the invitation because he says, come. And to those who have hidden themselves under the name of Christian and in a faith just sort of in general, but not actually placed their life in his hands, Jesus freely extends his invitation. He says, come, the banquet is ready. Chapter 21, verse 45, it says that the Pharisees perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. Will you see this morning that he's 
speaking about you? It's not too late to respond, to tell him, I don't, I don't want to go my own way anymore. I believe you are Jesus, the Son of God, who died for my sins and who rose again. And in you, I place my hope and my trust and my life for rescue and for righteousness. Because, friends, the other option is too costly. It's too real. Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone. He's the only place where hope of rescue is found and the inviting promise of joy everlasting. There's no other name like Jesus. And there is no salvation in any other. May his name be marvelous in our eyes. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we all need this opportunity to repent and to call upon the name of Jesus to trust him maybe for the first time today or possibly simply to, to get those stones out of our shoes and, and recognize, okay, I've drifted off course. I'm heading a different direction. If I keep going the same way I'm going, I'm building up a, a false empire that will not give me entrance into the kingdom of God. Help us to see those things, to repent of them, and to place our faith, our trust, our lives in the hands of Jesus. There's no other name like him. In his name we pray, amen.